The way in which we operate is defined in large part by our memories. Memory is a core component of the human identity. In this show, we hope to explore the nuances of this fundamental aspect of our brains. These conversations aim to illustrate the strengths, weaknesses, and mysteries surrounding remembering and forgetting. I'm Isabel Nieves. And I'm Tanner Chalet. And this is Remembering and Forgetting, a podcast by Themester. Stress is an unavoidable part of life. Every day, we are presented with a new stressor. And if you are a college student, this is probably something you know all too well. But how can too much stress affect us and our memory? I sat down with Dr. Kara Wellman to find out. On this episode, um, we have in the studio Dr. Kara Wellman, um, the director of the Center for Integrative Study of Animal Behavior and professor of psychological and brain sciences at Indiana University. Um, Dr. Wellman researches the neurobiology of stress, more specifically as an important variable in the development of and expression of many psychological disorders such as schizophrenia and depression. Um, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks. That's good. That's good. Um, so let's get started with some of the questions. Um, I thought you could explain some terms for um, our student listeners and any other listeners who aren't familiar with some of these psychological terms um, and um, scientific terms. So could you explain um, neurotransmitter systems um, and the brain structures that you study that are affected by stress so that our listeners can kind of get an idea um, as we go on and as we ask more questions and dive deeper into that conversation? Okay, sure. Um, this is a, so I'm going to try to just focus just on the neurotransmitter systems and structures that are relevant to our conversation. Um, but just to sort of lay a very basic groundwork. So um, brain cells, neurons communicate with each other by releasing chemical messengers called neurotransmitters uh, onto each other, um, where they interact with receptors and influence the activity of the receiving neuron. Um, for our purposes, the uh, two of the critical neurotransmitters and uh, other chemical messengers that that uh, we'll be talking about are um, actually, I guess, three: norepinephrine, epinephrine, and um, cortisol. So, um, norepinephrine and epinephrine uh, also uh, have um, alternative names, and, and one of those you may have heard of. So epinephrine is also called adrenaline. So it's not just a neurotransmitter. It's also released by the adrenal glands, um, which are uh, critical, the activation of which is critical for your stress response. Um, cortisol is also released by the adrenal glands, and you may have heard that also referred to as a glucocorticoid. So glucocorticoids are a class of of hormones, and cortisol is one example, one important example of that class of hormones. So um, that's what you need to know about neurotransmitters going into this conversation. Uh, lots of structures in the brain, many, many structures in the brain are influenced by stress. Um, three structures that uh, you hear about a lot in terms of the stress response are uh, the hippocampus, which is important in acquiring new memories, uh, the amygdala, which is important in orchestrating learned fear responses, uh, and the prefrontal cortex, which is important for emotional regulation, 
um, personality and um, what's called executive function, so uh, um, sort of cognitive flexibility. And those are the three main structures I'm going to be talking about. Okay, that definitely gives, at least me, um, I'm not a psychology major or uh, have anything to do with neuroscience, but it's really interesting, but that really um, clears a lot of things up. when it comes to what we're going to be talking about, how stress affects these parts of the brains and affects these neurotransmitter systems um, and can potentially cause these um, psychological disorders. So can you talk a bit about the effects of stress on um, what does it do to the neurotransmitter um, systems first? And then we could talk about what does stress do to these brain structures, especially the hippocampus in terms of memories? Okay. So um, what I'll do is describe what happens when you're in a stressful situation. So when you're in a stressful situation, say you're walking in the woods and you see a cougar out there, um, probably pretty scary, right? So um, when you're in that stressful situation, you perceive something, some stimulus out there in the environment as threatening or dangerous. Um, you have a stress response. And one thing I think it's important to emphasize um, that a lot of what's out there sort of in um, the popular press gets wrong is that the stress response is not a simple unitary response. There are at least two major components of a stress response. So one component of the stress response, and this is the component that you're you're aware of in the moment, right? So you see that scary thing and you have what's called a flight, flight or fight response. You get um, maybe a little shaky, you, uh, your palms start to sweat, your heart rate increases, your breathing increases. Um, you're getting ready to either run away or deal with this problem. That's the result of the activation of your sympathetic nervous system. And that activation of the sympathetic nervous system increases um, epinephrine release from the adrenal glands, and it increases um, the release of norepinephrine in the brain, among other uh, neurotransmitters. But those are two, two key components of the sympathetic response to a stressful situation. And that's getting you, that, that is providing the, the increased arousal um, that you need to, to deal with the, the threatening situation. At the same time, that increased arousal um, uses up a lot of energy. And so the other uh, important component of the stress response is um, the release of cortisol from the adrenal glands. Cortisol is a hormone. It's intimately involved in the stress response. It's also involved more generally in in metabolic processes in your body. Um, So for instance, cortisol release increases when you wake up in the morning as you need more energy to need to use more energy to start your day. Um, It's also increased dramatically when you're in that stressful situation, and um, the effect of that release is to mobilize sources of energy to provide the energy you need um, for the stress response. And it also also has a lot of effects on the brain in addition to that sort of uh, energy mobilizing function. Uh, You can have an increase in cortisol like if I were to just give you some cortisol, you wouldn't have that fight or flight response at all. You wouldn't have that increased 
respiration, et cetera, it doesn't have those kinds of effects. So what you're, what you're aware of your body doing when you're um, in a stressful situation, that's the sympathetic nervous system. What the cortisol is doing is, is regulating metabolic uh, resources. So that's, okay, so that's more of like the, what's happening with your neurotransmitter when you're uh-huh. in these stressful situations. Um, what's happening to these brain structures when you're in, that, uh, in any stressful situation? Mm-hmm. Well, so um, one of the effects that the combination of cortisol and norepinephrine have is to actually um, facilitate certain kinds of learning and memory. And specifically what they do is um, increases in cortisol and norepinephrine in the brain can um, help to stamp in a memory more strongly. Um, That's called consolidation of memory. That's laying down the memory trace. And you facilitate that with with these, uh, with the stress response. so, for instance, um, a lot of people may have had an experience where um, they're in some sort of stressful situation. Say you get in an, uh, you know, a car accident, a fender bender at a certain corner at a certain intersection, say Jordan and 10th Street by the library. And what you may notice is like the next few times you go past that uh, intersection, as you're, as you're coming up to the intersection, you start to feel a little nervous, a little anxious, a little scared. And the reason for that is that you've learned to associate the cues at that intersection with that accident you had, which freaked you out. Um, eventually, and, and the reason you've formed such a strong association is because the increase in epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol that was going on during that stressful situation helped to stamp in the memory, the association between the cues on that corner and that bad thing that happened to you. Okay. That's called fear conditioning and one of the classical effects of, of the changes you undergo during a stressful situation is that it facilitates that fear memory. How does stress uh, play a role with depression and schizophrenia? How does it go into depression and influencing depression and also influencing schizophrenia? Mm-hmm. So um, many, many, many disorders, depression, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, lots of anxiety disorders are influenced by stress. So stress in combination with a variety of other factors that uh, leads to these disorders. Um, And one of the sort of uh, frustrating things is that we actually don't know for sure yet exactly how stress contributes to a lot of these disorders, but we do know that um, a history of stress, uh, stressful life events, uh, early life stress uh, is a risk factor for disorders like schizophrenia and depression. And we have some ideas about um, some of the mechanisms underlying that. Schizophrenia is characterized by dysfunction of the prefrontal cortex. Uh, It's also characterized by uh, some hippocampal dysfunction. So for instance, in the long run on the average, someone with schizophrenia has a smaller hippocampus than someone who doesn't. Um, Depression is also characterized by dysfunction of the prefrontal cortex. Uh, 
So um, if we understand something about how stress influences these structures, it might help us to understand some of the, the contributors to these disorders. And we know from work with um, experiments involving um, animal models, rats and mice, that exposure to chronic stress, so daily stressors over a long period time of time, can produce uh, shrinkage of the hippocampus and shrinkage of the prefrontal cortex. And specifically, if you look at the individual neurons in those structures, you will see that um, in animals that have been exposed to chronic stress, the dendrites are shorter in those animals. The dendrites are the um, parts of the neurons that are receiving information. They're sort of the information processing units of these neurons. And so if you change the length of the dendrites, you're changing how those neurons process information. Um, and those changes are associated with um, changes in um, the behaviors that those structures are critical for. So for instance, um, that the shrinkage of dendrites in prefrontal cortex is associated with um, deficits in um, behaviors in cognitive processes like um, behavioral flexibility, cognitive flexibility, being able to um, switch um, winning strategies over time when the, when the rewards change, or um, working memory, being able to hold one bit of information sort of in your conscious memory in the service of solving a problem. Um, extinction of conditioned fear. So extinction of learned fear, that fear memory that got stamped in, if you're exposed to those cues long enough, you, or repeatedly, eventually you'll stop responding with fear. That's called extinction. Prefrontal cortex is critical for that process, and prior exposure to chronic stress impairs that extinction process. So many, many of these behaviors and cognitive processes that are uh, um, critically controlled by the prefrontal cortex are um, impaired after a prolonged bout of stress, and they're also impaired in these disorders that we know are very sensitive to stress. Yeah, and um, I wanted to talk about also PTSD as another disorder. As you said, PTSD is influenced by stress, among other things. Um, and so can you talk a bit about that? Because, you know, um, PTSD... Uh, caused by traumatic stress from traumatic memories. Mm -hmm. um, how does stress play within PTSD? Does it play any role at all? Does it have some influence to that disorder mm -hmm. and yes. with our memories? Yes, absolutely. So, um, well, so post-traumatic stress disorder gets its name because uh it, one of the sort of uh, basic ingredients of this disorder is having experienced some sort of specific traumatic stressor. Um, so you don't get PTSD if you haven't been exposed to stress. The symptoms of PTSD, actually, and let me back up a minute. So uh, you have to be exposed to a, a traumatic stressor to get a, to have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but even setting that aside, again, a history of chronic stress, of early life stress, 
is a risk factor for later PTSD when you're exposed to a traumatic stressor. So again, there's a link between that ongoing stress earlier and a problem later. Um, the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder um, comes um, not immediately after you're exposed to a stressor, and that's because everybody or the vast majority of people who are exposed to a traumatic stressor have certain symptoms. They will uh, have hypervigilance. They'll be like more responsive to loud noises, et cetera. They'll be you know, sort of monitoring their surroundings more carefully. They have um, avoidance. You know, they tend to not want to be exposed to the, the reminders of that event. Um, they have uh, re-experiencing. When they are exposed to the reminders, they have a, you know, a vivid memory of the event. And again, that re-experiencing is likely to do, due to the strong stamping in of the fear memory because you have this, had the stress response when you underwent that stressful event. Um, most people will have those symptoms for a month, six weeks or so, and they'll eventually go away. Uh, for some, someone with PTSD, those symptoms don't go away. And so it's at that point when they would have gone away, but they're sticking around where a person gets that diagnosis. One of the critical, one of the hallmarks of PTSD, in addition to those symptoms, is impaired extinction of learned fear. Um, again, that involves the prefrontal cortex, and we know stress uh, impairs the functioning of prefrontal cortex and specifically produces deficits in extinction. We've been talking a lot about how stress, um, you know, it can help us remember those, I don't know if help is, the, but it can influence how we remember, stress can help uh it can influence how we remember um, certain traumatic memories. Um, how can it, can stress possibly make us forget any traumatic memory or any um, stressful type of memory if we're too stressed, um, any certain type of levels of stress? Well, so I'm not sure you can say that uh, high levels of stress would, would help you forget a stressful memory, but um, it is the case that um, not all stress is bad. There's a certain optimal level of stress. Too little stress and your performance is going to suffer. Too much stress and your performance is going to suffer, but a moderate amount of stress does in fact facilitate memory. Um, and so you wouldn't want to be absolutely completely relaxed and calm right when you are learning something studying for a test you're not going to do as well as if you're a little if, if you have some sort of moderate level of arousal um, so from that point of view too little stress can actually impair memory um, it's also the case that so i've been focusing on how stress can facilitate an acute stressor a one time, a stressor in this moment, can facilitate the laying down of a memory trace, but that can vary depending on the amount of stress. So if you get too much stress, you can get some impairment. And um, it can also vary depending on the type of memory um, you're talking about. And at the same time that it can facilitate these sort of emotional memories, it 
can, and and some non-emotional memories, like simple memories for facts, et cetera, things that are going on in that situation. Um, It can also impair some sorts of cognitive functions. Again, excess stress. Yeah, when I was doing some research, um, I read about like the bell curve, as you were saying, Mm -hmm. that represents the level of stress and its effects, where like if there's, um, you know, a good amount of stress, then that's where you're going to be, you know, the most productive. Um, But if you have like too much stress, then that's when it really can affect you. Exactly. Um, Because then, you know, the amount of stress can, I read about like the fight or flight response Mm -hmm. and how that can go into overdrive. And then we stop um, filtering in like finer details. Exactly. um, Which then can, yeah, impair our, our memory. Um, so I, with that, I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, um, college as a stressful environment, Mm -hmm. um, and possibly, um, a stressful, um, or one of these stressors for college students. Um, how can, you know, students maybe manage this stress Mm -hmm. so that, you know, it can, they can be somewhat proactive about prevention of such disorders like depression, um, possibly schizophrenia, but I feel like, you know, depression, um, and anxiety, those are some of the bigger disorders that, um, college students face. And with college being a stressful environment, um, it's just going to happen, you know, with tests, courses, um, jobs, how can, you know, students try to manage this stress? Mm -hmm. Excellent question. Um, and luckily I think there are lots of things you can do to manage stress, uh, and there are lots of uh, studies out there, there's lots of experimental evidence that suggests a number of factors that um, that you can think of as, as making stress less stressful. They mitigate the effects of stress. So for instance, and in fact, it's probably important to point out what I've been talking about is uncontrollable stress, right? Stress you can't influence. Um, but there are lots of, of uh, things that can make a stressor controllable, right? You can plan, you can schedule, you can make decisions about your coursework, how much you're doing and when. Um, and so anything you can do to make the stressful situation more controllable will make the situation less stressful. Um, in fact, there are data to suggest that if you can control a stressor, if a rat can control a stressor, it prevents some of these negative effects of stress. Um, you don't even necessarily have to be able to, to control it completely. If you can predict it, that makes the stressor less stressful. It makes the, it, it, it uh, mitigates the effects of the stressor. So, um, you know, we, again, we can schedule, we can look at, we can plan and know when our exams are coming up and so on. Um, so that can be very helpful. Predicting the stressor, controlling, doing something about it. Um, and then there are some ways in which you can avoid stressors, right? You can um, navigate your environment in such a way that, that you're not setting yourself up for a stressful event. Um, so by being proactive and um, sort of looking at at what's going on in your life and planning accordingly that can be very helpful one thing i forgot to 
ask earlier when we were talking about um, what you study, I wanted to talk about um, the models that you use to study stress. You talked about um, using mice um, because you do a lot of work with animal behavior Mm -hmm. um, in determining these effects of stress on our brain um, and our uh, behavior. So can you talk a bit about those models that you use, the mice as the models, and why do you use mice? So um, I have used mice a bit. Mostly what I use is rats. And um, the reason I use those animal models is because for two reasons. One is you are able to experimentally manipulate the stressor in the long term in ways that you can't ethically do in humans. Um, And the other reason um, is that I am interested in uh, how stress influences the uh, structure and function of the brain on a cellular level. And so if you're interested in studying these things on a cellular level, you really need to use animal models so that you can actually do in-depth analyses of those, those neurons. So um, one thing that I read about is that you um, researched the stress's influence on um, psychopathology. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, so uh, m- what my research has focused on is and is the effects of stress um, in the absence of psychopathology. So I'm using animal models. Um, and so most of what I'm studying is, in the long run on the average, how do these um, unusual situations, how do these stressors affect the function of brain structures that we know are involved in these psychological disorders like depression and PTSD. Um, and the idea there is that if we understand how stress affects the brain, then we can apply it to um, other uh potential models of psychopathology and look at how stress might interact with some other risk factor to produce psychological disorders. Um, One example of that is that uh, in collaboration with a colleague, um, we've looked at the effects of um, early life stress um, interacting with um, a genetic variant um, that affects the serotonergic system. And that genetic variant that affects the affects serotonin uh, has been implicated as a risk factor in pathological aggression. So one of the features potentially of, of um, um, sociopathy um, or uh, psychopath, uh, psychopathic disorders. Um, and but that genetic variant alone isn't enough to produce the risk for pathological aggression. It's the genetic variant combined with a history of early life stress. And together, that interaction is what increases the risk uh, for this, this pathological aggression. And so what we've done is in mouse models that where that gene has been manipulated, we can compare uh, parts of the brain that are involved in aggressive behavior, impulsiveness, et cetera, in these animals that have had the early life stress and have this genetic risk versus animals that haven't had that early life stress or um, who do and don't have the genetic risk. And so we can sort of tease apart um, 
the independent contributions of those two factors and their uh, how they combine to produce this aggressive behavior and what brain structures are actually involved in that. I had one more question. So we've been talking, um, I mean, one of the questions is how we can manage stress as students. And that was more so um, being able to deal with controlled stressors. Um, but I was really curious about, you know, we've been talking about um, uncontrollable stressors mm -hmm. that can influence um, certain abnormal, abnormal behaviors that lead to disorders such as depression and schizophrenia. Um, what are ways to manage those uncontrollable stressors after they happen, after the fact? Would it be therapy um, or is there some other type of solution to kind of alleviate those uncontrollable stressors? Mm -hmm. So um, one sort of final way. So yeah, sometimes you can't avoid the stressor. You're exactly right. And so uh, what you can do at that point potentially is change your response to it, right? You can change the way you think about that stressor, um, change uh, how you are following up after the fact, um, when you're thinking about it, the meaning you ascribe to it. And sometimes that uh, requires therapy. Maybe it doesn't require therapy, but can very often help to have somebody working on that, that sort of changing the way you're thinking about these stressors with you. Um, I think a lot of students also probably do that on their own or with the help of friends. Um, but um, that's a really critical component of what comes after the stressor. If you can change the way you think about it, you can, you can really help um, ameliorate some of those effects of stress. Yeah, because you said, like, the stress, um, you know, it affects those neurotransmitter systems and then those um, brain structure mm -hmm. systems, you know, like, it, there can be some impairment to the prefrontal cortex or to the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. When those abnormal, or not abnormal, when those um, uncontrollable stressors and uncontrollable stress affect or influence those parts, um, is it irreversible or is it just some kind of short-term influence or damage on those parts? Is it fixable? Excellent question. So uh, we have done some work that suggests that uh, the effects of stress on uh, prefrontal uh, structure and function are not permanent. Um, so uh, eventually, if you wait long enough, uh, the neurons sort of uh, remodel. Um, the interesting thing is that um, what those neurons may do is not exactly go back to their sort of unstressed state. They change sort of in a new way. And for some animals that may, th those changes may then make them more resilient to the next stressor. Whereas for other animals, it, it may actually make them more susceptible to the next stressor. And so that, that uh, leads to a big question about, well, so um, do individuals who, say, have a stressful event and go on to uh, get a diagnosis of depression or PTSD, are they um, 
are their neurons changing in a way that makes them more susceptible versus more vulnerable? Um, and that's an excellent question that we don't know the answer to yet. But what we do know is that the neurons, that those, the remodeling that we're seeing right after the stressor isn't permanent. The neurons continue to change. Remembering and Forgetting is a podcast produced for the Mester at IU. Special thanks to IU's College of Arts and Sciences, Tracy B., Ken Smith, and the Media School for today's episode. Music for this episode by Jack Brown. For more discussions on memories surrounding somatic dance, forms of commemoration, and more, check out the rest of Remembering and Forgetting. Thank you for listening.